0: The Golden Stallion is here for something that I like to do at least once a month. There might, I, I don't think I've ever had an occasion where I've done it more than that, but I like to do it at least once a month, and that is the Star Wars update. I do one for, for patrons only, uh, again, every month. Um, I also do one for Star Trek, and if I ever find something else that tickles my fancy to that level, which is a pretty hard sell that something could ever, you know, uh, speak to me, or, uh, you know, that I could appreciate as much as I appreciate Star Wars or Star Trek. But, hey, you never know. So I'm just putting that out there. I mean, there's Babylon 5, but, you know, we're not going to get... We were supposed to get a movie in 2016. That didn't happen. Oh, well. But whatever. Anyway, we're probably never going to get any... Or not... I shouldn't say never. In fact, I want to talk about this at some point, but I'm not going to talk about it now. But I really feel like the TV landscape has changed significantly. And if you want me to give you a hint... It actually has to do with Fuller House, but I'm going to save that maybe for a climax uh, in a Sovereign Tech Prime episode, because I think that's a huge thing to talk about. So because I never want to say, oh, we'll, we'll never see any more Babylon 5. Um, th- th- things have changed. So <laughs> anyway, not not with Babylon 5. I'm saying with TV in general. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's get into the Star Wars update. I'm actually going to be cutting. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of subjects, a lot of content that I wanted a lot of media that has been released by Lucasfilm uh, that I wanted to talk about, but there's so much that particularly came out or finished up in September that it doesn't make sense to talk about all of it. I'd be here for two hours. Not that I think anybody would mind. In fact, longer episodes seem to be, I, someone recently actually told me that, um, I don't, I don't think it was Spreaker or maybe it was Libsyn. One of the, one of the podcast companies as it were, Uh, released statistics as far as like what averages are and the average most listened to podcasts are two hours long. I would have thought it would be the exact opposite that people would mainly listen to podcasts that are like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that. But I'll tell you, I think that this week in tech and every show, most of the main shows on this week in tech probably heavily skew uh, that, that number because, you know, the security now is two hours, this week in tech is two hours plus. I mean, anyway, so, and of course, Sovereign Tech is two hours, but this is not going to be. So what, let's let's stop talking about that. But I'm just saying that for the October Star Wars update, which will be coming in a few weeks, uh, that one, I'll, stuff that I had to push off from this Star Wars update, I will just cover in that. Because in September, we got a very rare event, which we had... Well, it's not a rare. I mean, it's once a year, but we had a rarer event in what was released. So the rare event was Force Friday, uh, which was was that the fourth whenever it was in September. But on that day, or it was the ninth on that day, we we got two full Star Wars novels. Uh, So, hey, (laughs) you know, I'm not complaining about that. But admittedly, that took me a little while to, you know, consume. Usually it's one book and I can knock it out maybe in a day or a couple days because the average, you know, I listen to Star Wars books. I listen to them. I don't I don't read them uh, generally. I I get, you know, uh, digital copies as well as the audible copies, uh, but mainly because in case I need to look up the spelling of a word or something like that, you know, because Star Wars has a lot of funny terms and funny names, Um you know, I, I I still get digital copies of them, but how I consume Star Wars media, because there is sort of so much, is I listen to it because I can listen to a full novel completely unabridged, inside of you know inside of like five hours. Okay, so I can do that in a day, or you know if it's a really good day, a real you know day where I'm just like kind of doing more mindless stuff, um, or I could do it in a couple two three days something like that. Uh, so September has been somewhat of a busy month for me. You we went to a festival, a few other things, but um, yeah. So I finally got around to listening to both of those novels that came out. Uh, also, there's a lot of comic books that, that had come out and, and there's some other things I think really to discuss in general. So I want to, in some series actually finished up. So I, I want to get, um, get into these. Um, and there's other things that I had not reviewed yet as well, like uh, uh, that includes uh, Forces of Destiny, which are these like two two and a half minute or so shorts that were released on the Star Wars channel on YouTube. Um, but anyway, we'll get into that. So, but let's start it off with really what I think was the hottest thing to come out this month um, with Star Wars. Well, you know, actually, first off, let's talk a little bit about the state of Star Wars, shall we? <laughs> uh, of course, we had um, you know Colin Trevorrow ended up getting dumped from Episode Nine. And now we have J.J. Abrams, who is going to be writing, well, not writing exactly, but I'm sure he'll have a heavy hand in that. But who will be directing uh, episode nine? I feel like Star Wars is in a ve- very precarious place right now, and we're going to cover that more as we talk about some of the some of the media, uh, the books and the comics that have come out uh, in September and a little before, um, as well as a little bit about Forces of Destiny. I think that there is there is an overarching style. There is an overarching uh, marketing plan that is being that is that is readily seeable, I think. But, yeah, I feel like Star Wars is is in some pretty rough shape. Um, I don't I don't you know, as far as the, the, the episode nine news with Colin Trevorrow, you know, being replaced by J.J. J. Abrams. Um, I I get it. You know, maybe Trevor wasn't playing ball. Maybe they're concerned about his numbers, blah, blah, blah. All right, I understand all that. Uh, I would not have gone with J.J. Abrams. I really would have gone with Ryan Johnson. I understand that that they tried, and he said, look, I – supposedly they tried and he said hey like this is just too daunting this is or not daunting not like he couldn't do it but it's just so tasking that um he didn't want to do it and there was like no i i mean it's hard to believe that there was an amount of money <laughs> that that he would say no to but that they could offer but w- whatever um so JJ J. Abrams fine i wouldn't have minded a lot of people were talking about when when this you know whole director shakeup happened uh you know just coming off of The heels of Ron Howard taking over, uh, you know, the Han Solo solo movie or solo movie, the Han Solo movie side 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 movie, side project, whatever, um, you know, from from the previous directors of that. And that's why I say things are very precarious. Like it was a smart move, a a smart PR move to say, okay, we're bringing in J.J. Abrams because The Force Awakens is by many metrics the most successful movie of all time. Uh, so, you know, how how are you going to argue with that? But I liked they you know, some people reached back to um, some very old interviews from like the 80s uh, of uh, with George Lucas, where George Lucas simply said, I want to be the guy directing the last Star Wars movie. And I think that would have been awfully damned big of Disney slash Lucasfilm. And I think it would have been poetic if they allowed him to direct episode nine, he didn't have to write it, but to let him direct it. Oh yeah. I, I, you know, and he didn't have to be in the editing room, but to let him be the director. Fine. You know, fuck, even if it's a name only and you bring on, you know, ha- have JJ be like, you know, second director. I, I forget what the position's called where you're like, you're right underneath and you're kind of doing the, for lack of a better phrase, I don't like this phrase, but you're doing the bitch work. Right. Um, you know, bring in somebody else that you know another big name underneath them that that could do a lot of that. I I really think that would have been huge, and that though maybe that would have created a whole lot more controversy. I don't know because for some reason, you know, I I'm I'm definitely a part of the prequel defense force, but there's a lot of people that really hate the prequels that much uh, to where you, you know they just they they never ever want um, you know George Lucas to be touching Star Wars again. I think that's a I think that's criminal, but okay whatever. That's how, that's how you feel about it. Um, so star Wars is really right now. I mean, it's really riding high on the fact that it's had successful films. Um, I still think, and we'll, we'll talk about rogue one more, uh, uh throughout this. I still think that rogue one was meant to be a very different film. Um, it, it just is. I mean, just deal with it. Like I, I'm never going to let that go that that movie was meant to be something completely different than it was. And there's plenty of scenes and they're not just scenes made for trailers. There's plenty of dialogue. There's stuff that exists within the novel by Alexander Freed and all that, where, you know, there was another movie that, that was, or I mean, uh, Ben Mendelsohn even said that there was like four different cuts four major different ways that each scene was recorded for like, and uh, completely different scenes. I mean, so, you know, we have the hints that there was a a much better film out there. Not say rogue one is bad. Okay. In fact, it's, it's part of a larger picture that we'll, that we'll be talking about, but um, because it's not bad, it was, it was an excellent movie. Okay. But I think there could have been something way, way better. I think there was meant to be a film in the first half. That's completely different from the film. That's actually in the first half, second half, Largely, I think, came together the way it was meant to. And it's beautiful in what it is. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, just just crazy stuff. I guess we'll talk more about the state of Star Wars, you know, as, as we get uh, get into all this. I don't know that there's any other like minute news that has any real bearing that's worth talking about. But definitely the Trevor O. shakeup was uh, was kind of crazy. Um, I, I mean, a part of me does wonder, like, you know, what what the hell? Like, why do these directors want to walk away from from Lucasfilm? you know like what is Lucasfilm asking to be done in these movies i mean i i don't know maybe maybe it's just the loss of creative control that they have when when they walk in i mean and certainly jj abrams has plenty of co- you know gravitas to where and and uh and, and panache uh and cash cachet cash whatever where cachet social cachet how about that where, <laughs> where i like saying cachet <laughs> where, uh, where he can you know really Call shots, you know, and, and, and certainly if he walks away, I mean, Lucasfilm would be in you know really, really dire straits. Uh, it, it's kind of a crazy thing, but, I, but I, there might be a reason why they're so, uh, why they're so hard nosed about a lot of this stuff. And, uh, maybe we'll talk about that as we get into, uh, reviewing the, uh, the media that was released in September and some of which also came to conclusion in September. But let's start right off with the good stuff. I mean, th- like this is, in fact, I gave a ranking in the Sovereign Tech uncensored Facebook group. I gave a ranking after I read this book. Uh the book is Leia Princess of Alderaan by uh, by Claudia Gray. And keep in mind this and the book Phasma, which is about Captain Phasma obviously, uh both came out the same day, okay? So, you know, it's like Christmas in September. But <laughs> but anyway, but Leia Princess of Alderaan by by Claudia Gray. Um, this book, I did a ranking, like I said, and and I mean, I'll just I'll just put this right out up front. Uh, my number one book is still Thrawn. I thought Thrawn was just was a was a brilliant piece of not just of writing, but of performance. And what I mean by that is the performance of the, you know, the production of the audiobook, book, uh, the voice acting or, you know, the the the, uh, the narrator, all that was just tremendous. It, w- it was through the roof. Uh, how, just how rock solid and how uh, uh, it, engrossing that that really was. Uh, it was, it was really something. So anyway, so I, yeah, number one would be Thrawn. Uh, number two, I think I put Dark Disciples still, which I love. Christy Golden's work in Star Wars has been fantastic. She also did um, Inferno Squadron. She did uh, the, the Battlefront 2 prequel book um, that, that also had tremendous production value in the audiobook. Uh, because it actually had uh, Janina Gavankar reprising her role, uh, you know, as as the the main character in Battlefront Two, you know, and 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 doing the the entire audiobook herself, which I thought was a, was a Iden Verso, right? It's kind of I talked about that in the last Star Wars update where it's weird. It sounds like the reverse of of uh Jen UrsO VersO, like where she's she's like the Imperial version of of Jen UrsO. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that that was really cool. But anyway, but her book, uh, her her first book that she did for for Star Wars and, you know, for the new canon was actually based off of a Clone Wars script, which explains probably why it was so good, because, you know, it's it's some of Dave Filoni's work, uh, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, so Dark Disciple, you know, I definitely I give that a really, really, really top marks. Uh, it also introduced one of my new favorite characters In I don't want to say the expanded universe, but someone who hasn't been on film or animation yet, uh, you know, film or TV yet, but has just been in the books. That being, uh, uh, oh, what's her name? Lassa Rame, right? (laughs) Uh, Captain of the Bloodbone Order, or, well, her ship's called The Opportunity. Uh, But she is a Pantoran female, just the whole character, the presentation, everything. She is so sexy. Uh, She is not in... Leia, Princess of Alderaan, but she's in both of, interestingly, she's in both the Christy Golden's works. Now that's, there's a point I have to make with that. But anyway, going on number three, I put Lost Stars on this list. So we had, uh, we had Tarkin, Dark Disciple, then, uh, then Lost Stars by Claudia Gray, then Leia, Princess of Alderaan, also by Claudia Gray. And then number five, I put Tarkin. And We'll get into number four, obviously, because that's what I'm reviewing here. But Tarkin putting that in number five really has to do with like Tarkin's backstory is very interesting. Uh, the Carrion Spike, which is kind of the, the lead ship in that which belongs to Tarkin, has a greater role to play later on in Star Wars, even after Return of the Jedi, when you read the Poe Dammer in comics. Uh, but I I enjoy the, the main thing for me with Tarkin. Was in that book, you find out and we talked about this in previous Star Wars updates, you find out why the emperor, what his plan is, like what why he does what he does, what he's trying to do, what he's trying to accomplish, etc. Same with Thrawn also does that. And, and as I've said many times, the secret ingredient for truly great uh, Star Wars content, Star Wars media, whatever it is, book, comic, um, you know, movie, you name it, is the emperor. The emperor is the secret sauce when he comes on the scene or there's talk of him or something. I mean, everybody's breath is just held, you know, and and I think it's true. And if they ever I I know there's been hints of this back in the Rick McCollum days with Lucas and so on. uh, and, And even to today, if they ever do like a young Palpatine series. I am so on and I guarantee you that's going to be one of the greatest shows in television history if they ever decide to really do that. I mean, some of the scripts that they talked about that were made by McCollum and Lucas. Well, I mean, I don't think Rick McCollum himself actually wrote them. Just he was kind of the yes man at the time. Uh, You know, it it may not have been the strongest stuff in the world, but really, I I think I think it would have ended up uh, being huge just because you would have known it's the emperor. And if it still ends up coming into fruition, it is still going to be huge. I mean, even on Clone Wars, when you'd watch Clone Wars. When when Sidious would show up, like in season five or something, I mean, shit got real. You know, I mean, he he changes the game every time he shows up. So that's why Tarkin sits at number five. I mean, really, any of the books, except for maybe Tarkin, any of the books in the top five could just as easily be number one. You know, if I didn't like Thrawn as much as I like Thrawn, the character itself, maybe Thrawn wouldn't have been a number one. Maybe Dark Disciple or maybe... um you know, maybe Leia, Princess of Alderaan would have taken that seat. It very easily could have. Uh, so, and I mean, let's, let's talk about that because this is easy. I mean, this is definitely one of the greatest star Wars books ever written, just bar none, whether you're talking about the old EU or, uh, you know, the new Canon and Claudia gray right now, the author, she is the hottest thing going in, in star Wars media outside of the movies. I mean, she's just delivering, you know, story after story, Putting it all together. And this is the amazing thing with with Leia, Princess of Alderaan. First off, I mean, obviously, the titular character is amazing like that. That's that's a great character to get to work with. And Claudia Gray's already done it with Bloodlines, which took place six years before The Force Awakens, another book that she wrote, which could also have sat in the number five spot easy enough. You know, it could have taken out Tarkin, uh, same with uh, Tarkin was by James Lucino, but, uh, that could have unseated Tarkin. You know, there's a lot of books that, that could have easily sat into, into number five. Really. It is that the, the, the scenes with the emperor that make that put Tarkin over the top. But anyway, we're talking about, uh, you know, Leia Princess of Alderaan right now. Um, this, yeah, this book is just phenomenal. And what makes it so special is that it's the moment when, a lot of so this is part of the the uh, the road to, or journey to The Last Jedi, which Last Jedi comes out in December. OK, so now, you know, ever since this and Leia and Phasma, since those two books came out now, like all the content coming out, like there's the Canto Bright book coming out. There's that 40 that year journey book coming out. There's all this. Uh, there's all these books coming out. And they are. And then there's some comic series, too. They are all part of this journey to The Last Jedi, which they also did with The Force Awakens, where they had a bunch of books that were setting you supposed to be setting you up for what happens in The Force Awakens with The Force Awakens. None of it really sets you up with The Last Jedi. I think a lot of it is setting you is absolutely setting you up for major events that are going to happen in, uh, in The Last Jedi. And I think the reason that that's possible is completely because of Ryan Johnson. The director of The Last Jedi. I think that, he, and, and they said it, that he talked to, he talked to Claudia Gray about what, what content was in Bloodlines and that uh, he kind of had a hand in a lot of the, um, you know, novels and maybe even comic books and other things. So I think that's why there's going to be a lot of hints, uh, you know, you know, that, that, that will have bearing that you're reading about in these books that will eventually have bearing in The Last Jedi or maybe even Episode nine, uh, which is nice to have that finally, because, I mean, a Catalyst, I think when when Rogue One came out and they had the prequel book for it called Catalyst, I think that had a lot of bearing and allowed that movie to make a lot more sense than maybe it just maybe than it did straight up. Uh, not to say it was a confusing film, but I think there was a lot more going on that you understood when you read Catalyst beforehand, just like I think there may be a lot of things that might be very interesting because you already have in and look, spoiler alerts, folks. I mean, that's just that's how it is. Um, with Leia, Princess of Alderaan, you get uh, you find out about Crate, which you find out is an old rebel base uh, that, you know, that Leia kind of d- discovers in this. And Crate, you find out, is is one of the main planets. In fact, if you watch the trailer for The Last Jedi, um, I think it's the scene where when, when like the music really hits hard, you know, about a minute in and, uh, you see those like land speeder things with the red dust behind them. That's crate. So you visit crate in this, which is a direct planet. That's, that's going to take, uh, you know, that has bearing in major bearing in the last Jedi. Um, you also have, uh, you, you have, uh, what's her name? Uh, Haldo who is being played by Laura Dern, who's a vice admiral of resistance in the last Jedi. But you get to experience Amalyn Haldo as princess Leia's best friend or, you know, close friend, whatever in this. And you get to experience the character and you get some history around that, but you get history of their relationship. Again, very direct bearing upon the last Jedi, unless Laura Dern's character, you know, unless Amilyn Haldo isn't going to be a big deal in the last Jedi. I mean, maybe, you know, certainly star Wars has pulled that hat trick before. So, I mean, those are nice touches that will hopefully have some kind of, you know, will allow for some grander meaning in what you end up seeing in December in The Last Jedi. I'm certainly looking forward to that. But even that wasn't really the strength of this book. And the next thing I'm about to talk about isn't the strength of the book either. We're, we're going to get into what that is, uh, you know, at the end of the review for this, and then we're going to move on to reviewing other things. Uh, so one of my favorite things about this, even though I feel like they sort of fucked it up from what originally was probably George Lucas's vision, but you got to spend a lot of time on Alderaan and you got to finally experience what Alderanian culture is like, what the royal family is like, you know, that Leia's a part of, um, you, you know, I mean, you, you got to experience. And, and this is something I was hoping would be in Rogue One, but fine, it's not in Rogue One it, you know, I'd still love to see the visuals. I'm sure there's going to be a show where they're going to show what Alderaan's like at some point, anyway. But all right, whatever. I'm getting my Alderanian fix in Leia, princess of uh, princess of Alderaan. Uh, and what what I think they changed, it seemed like, you know, in in before Disney took over Star Wars, Alderaan was generally accepted as being this pacifist world, no guns, no military. Like none, none of that shit. They get they got rid of their military. Uh, in fact, there's whole quotes from Bale about this sort of thing. Uh, but then, you know, what what you're finding out in this book is, oh, no, no, people go through various training. They have blasters with them and everything. And so it's not so much the pacifist world, even though throughout the book you are. I mean, this is this book very much has to do with Leia's introduction to the fact that there is a rebellion. OK, and against the empire, she's a senator, blah, blah, blah. But she's finding out, oh, shit, there's a rebellion. And of course, she finds out, oh, shit, my parents are the leaders of it. You know, that being, you know, Bail Organa and his wife. Uh, and you get to experience both of those characters very much in depth, which is which is really cool. But anyway, um, so, you know, she is wrestling constantly as she discovers these things, you know, finds out the truths about the rebellion and the empire, etc., You start to... I mean, she she does wrestle in her mind, like, wait a minute, is violence the way to go about this? You know, because she experiences at varying points that the Rebellion is absolutely a violent organization. You know, I mean, you could say it's defensive, but it's violent. And uh, she wrestles with that a bit. And of course, she finally comes to terms with it and says, "Okay, well, no, I'm going to be a part of the... You know, I'm going to be a part of the Rebellion. I don't think that's a spoiler alert, because for fuck's sake, you've seen the rest of the Star Wars movies. Otherwise, I don't know why you're listening to this. Uh, But... (laughs) But anyway, uh you get a lot of wh- one of the nice things in this is that the the interactions between uh, Bail Organa and finally getting to you know really experience Leia's adopted mother was really great too. But you get the interactions between Bail and and Leia and you find you you get good hints at why in Rogue One in fact it almost directly addresses it. Like it almost bashes you over the head with it. Why Bail says that he would tr- in Rogue One in the movie Rogue One why he says uh, that I would trust her with my life. And you get it. You find out exactly why uh, in this book, you know, where does that trust come from? Where, where does where does all that, that come together? Um, and that's that's one of the nicer points about this book is that everything really kind of starts tying into Rogue One. And this is something I said when I reviewed Rogue One, uh, when, when it came out last year, I said, we're going to find out, I think, in the next five years that Rogue One might be the most important movie in Star Wars Uh, because and like everything that's happening in it is going to have a lot more emotional resonance and it's going to have a lot more meaning as you consume the rest of the media and more movies come out and all that like you know eventually they're going to do some kind of show or movie about Jeddah, like ancient Jeddah. and so then when you watch Rogue One again and you see Jeddah get destroyed you're like oh shit that sucks. Wow. All the all that history, all those people are gone, you know, uh, or all the you know, all those artifacts are gone or something like that. So this book is also doing the same thing where it's pointing at Rogue One again. And everything's kind of saying, look, Rogue One's the big deal. You know, like this is this is the major movie. So Rogue One, the movie can I think can become a greater film over time. Regardless, And I, I don't mean in the sense that they could finally release the original cut that Gareth Edwards was doing. Um, I mean that like just for what it is, it can become a far more meaningful uh, film over time. So the other cool things uh, in this. And that is uh, that also explains a lot of what's happening in Rogue One. Um, but there's a nice some very nice nods to the prequels in this book. Uh, particularly in the introduction of Moff Panaka. Okay, that being, you know, remember Captain Panaka from episode one. Awesome. So cool to see that character again. Now, last year, there was a a reference book, a Star Wars reference book that came out uh, called Complete Locations. And this book, Complete Locations, had this one little nugget of information that was particularly interesting. So the book Complete Locations is like uh, it's it's sort of like those incredible cross sections books where it's giving you a breakdown of, you know, things on various planets. And it's from the entire saga, uh, you know, like there's stuff on Jakku, there's stuff on Hoth, there's stuff all over the place. And towards the end, you the, like the main the main fold outs in the book are and uh, cross sections in the book are of the Death Star 2, of course, from Return of the Jedi. And there you get a preview. Uh, or, you know, you kind of see a cutout, a cutaway of what the Emperor's uh, throne room, throne room that, of course, the classic battle between Luke and Vader happens in Return of the Jedi. What that really looks like and like what is sleeping chambers and everything looks like on the Death Star, two And in that there's one little little section, like you see this little statue sort of in this luxury room for the Emperor on the Death Star, two. And it says that this statue and it's just this little thing. I mean, you've got to read every little, little line. And it says right there, it says this is a gift from uh, the emperor's loyal, loyal friend, uh, Moff Panaka. It's like, whoa, I remember first reading that. And, and I was just like, holy shit, well, like Panaka still doing the business. And yeah, in Leia, uh, Princess of Alderaan, in this book, you find out that Panaka is still a very big deal. Um, you know, on, on Naboo and within the Galactic uh, Senate, as it were in the Galactic empire itself, um, and is a friend and confidant to, uh, to Emperor Palpatine. And in fact, this is, this is the moment that a, this is the scene. And it's only like one chapter, okay, where Leia goes to Naboo. And that's an interesting thing in itself, of course, because she doesn't know her own ancestry, uh, but she feels like a closeness to the planet and all this, even though they, they end up like on a mining moon for it. But regardless, um, she meets, she meets Panaka and Panaka recognizes her. Uh, and this is the scene everybody's been talking about with this book. And it is, it's great. Like it is a really, especially if you still have some passion left for the prequels, it's an amazing scene. Uh, Panaka recognizes that, oh shit, this is the daughter of, uh, you know, of Padme Amidala. And, you know, you can just see it in her face and everything. And he asks her various questions. Thing is, <laughs> So, so I guess, I guess the emperor has some sentimentality because in this book, not moments later, Panaka gets killed off, um, by, by saw, by one of saws, uh, you know, groups, uh, saw Guerrero's Ger- rebel groups, which of course are called the partisans. Um, they, they blow up Panaka's ship as, uh, you know, an act of terrorism, quote unquote. Um, and so Panaka is going to go tell the emperor, oh shit, Padme had a daughter uh, but he dies before he can tell, you know, before he can tell the the emperor. But I guess the emperor must have held on to a statue that Panaka gave him all the way into making it so important that it sits inside of the Death Star too. Very interesting, you know. I, I don't know how they thought that out, but I thought that the, I mean that was awesome. And like to, just to just to get that fucking respect again for once, for the prequels, particularly for Episode One, because Panaka was only in Episode One. Uh I thought, I thought was, was awesome. I was really, really happy with that. So that definitely caused this book to shine quite a bit. But in that action of, of Panaka dying, um, first off is that like Mon Mothma, who is also awesome in this book, she, she just delivers right and left in, in this, I mean, the book could almost have been titled her name instead of Leia, but you know, Leia does the deed anyway. Um, you know, Mon Mothma makes it very clear, or maybe it wasn't Mon Mothma, but Maybe maybe it was Leia's mother. Anyway, they thought they were hopeful that they could one day reach Panaka, and Panaka could be an ally, uh, which that was nice, you know, to, to, to pay respect again to the character. But also, this is one of those acts that see. So some of the rebellion really wanted to work with Panaka, but no, Saw's like, okay, patricians take him or uh, uh, partisans take him out. This creates that rift that you're getting that's getting being described in Rogue One, right, where Saw Gerrera is a fanatic. He's 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 nuts. And so we don't you know, we don't really deal with him anymore. He's off doing his own little rebellion, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So you get more of that, which you kind of got hints of in Rebel Rising. But this just adds on to that. Again, Rogue One becomes a much more meaningful movie after reading this book. Um, Tarkin is in this quite a bit. Another nice touch. And Tarkin is is written to a T. Uh, Another one of those great characters where when he when he hits the stage, because we knew how badass he was because he was in charge of the Death Star and A New Hope. Right. But we never got enough of him. And so to get more of him. In of course the book Tarkin, which is you know like I said his backstory is phenomenal in that, but and also in Lost Stars Claudia Gray has already been doing great writing Tarkin because he was in Lost Stars and he has that classic line it's like you know sometimes you need uh, the lure instead of the lash, um, but he's just as great in uh, in in Leia Princess of Alderaan, it, a couple scenes with him and and it just it just delivers and it's exactly what you expect from Tarkin. And it's really cool. And it just adds, adds on more layers to that character to where both rogue one and a new hope. Now also have a lot more, uh, you know, meaning to it. Um, Now, but let's talk about so so you've got all that and there's no need to really get into like what the main storyline is and all that, you you know, you can experience a lot of that. But those are kind of the nice hints that exist um, within the novel. But now as far as what makes this novel so great, well, there's there's two things going on here. Okay, like I said, there is the tie ins to Rogue One. So my first statement, you might not agree with my second statement. I can't imagine why you'd have any problem with. And if you actually read the books, I think you'd get it. Okay, Uh, my first statement is, is that I think I think Disney might know what I know. And that is, is that a new hope? Maybe, you know, eventually it's going to happen where like up and coming generations where a new hope does not. I mean, look, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, a new hope still looked fucking amazing. You know, and and I think and I and to this day, I still think George Lucas was absolutely right in making changes and updating effects and CGI and adding in CGI and all that into that film. And if you only saw it back in ninety seven and you never watched like the Blu-ray editions of A New Hope, understand the special editions didn't stop when they were released in ninety seven. George Lucas kept adding into them all the way until like two thousand five or or something like, or maybe it was like 2008 or 9. When, whenever he released the Blu-ray editions of it is pretty much the last time that he put a, a finishing touch on the original trilogy. I agree with him doing that, particularly with A New Hope, because otherwise I really think that up-and-coming generations will look at A New Hope, and your kid may be different, okay? But I think a lot of kids are not this way. They are the way I'm about to describe, where they think that movie looks old and ridiculous. And I think the movie, I actually think A New Hope is not that great of a movie. Uh, empire strikes back and return of the Jedi are two of the greatest things ever made by human, by humankind, a new hope. Uh, I mean, I get it. I understand how big I believe me. I totally fucking understand how big a deal it was in the seventies. I know, I know we wouldn't have empire in return if it wasn't for a new hope. I know, but it's kind of a rough film and it's, it's still to this day, it's at the bottom of my list of star Wars films. And I really can't see it ever getting any higher Uh, because everything is just like, I mean, it would have to be such a terrible Star Wars movie. It'd have to be like holiday special level shit to, to where I would consider a new hope. Uh, not the, not the, the least best Star Wars film, but let's be clear here. The least best Star Wars film is still the greatest film compared to any other film, you know, outside of Star Wars. Right. I mean, in my, more or less in my opinion. So, I'm insulting it, but at the same time, I'm not. I still recognize its overall greatness. But in comparison to the rest of Star Wars, it doesn't hold up. And I think they know. I think Disney might know that that's going to be true 10 years from now especially if not already where you have an entire generation of people that grew up with episode 1 2 and 3 and consider those star wars much more than 4 5 and 6 and they love episodes 1 2 and 3 and good for them okay so i think disney kind of knows that and i think i think they have a marketing they have a couple marketing strategies going right now one of them is is to put as much content around a new hope okay To to make a new hope, to give a new hope a lot more meaning, a lot more background, blah, blah, blah. Look, I know, uh, you know, us OG Star Wars fans, we don't need that. I know. All right. You don't have to tell me. But I think everybody else does. I think the up and coming generations, I think the generation right now kind of needs that. Uh, and you know, just about everybody, after watching Rogue One, either in theaters or when they got it on home video, the first thing they did is they put on A New Hope right after. It got everybody to rewatch that filmist, where I don't think most people would. They would watch one, two, three, five, six. Uh, there's, there's a very skewed. I mean, because people generally talk to their own age groups, there's a very skewed notion. I think where a, a lot of older Star Wars fans. Think that, no, everybody thinks the prequels suck and that, and that the original trilogy is everything. No, I hate to tell you, probably the bulk of Star Wars fans actually think the exact opposite. Uh, and I'm not saying the and I'm not saying the older Star Wars fans, I'm saying the young ones. Okay. The ones that are coming up, the ones that Disney's trying to get the one that Disney is trying to build a foundation on. Okay. Uh, they, they see the prequels as fuck. Yeah. They see the clone wars as fuck. Yeah. They see rebels as fuck. Yeah. Like this is awesome. And they still like five and six, but I think a lot of them, they don't, they don't so much care for four. Um, and I I've had conversations, so I'm not just, you know, pulling the shit on my ass, but anyway, so that's one thing. And this, this princess, you know, Leia princess of Alderaan book adds more, gives more meaning to rogue one and to by default, then a new hope. Um, also maybe in the background, Disney is thinking, well, if we make, if we make a a new, um, you know, if we appeal to a new hope, then we appeal, then we actually appeal to the OG crowd because they all loved a new hope or something. But I don't, I don't really think that that's the mindset that's going on there, but maybe, uh, anyway. So the other thing, and the thing that really makes this book very special is it is the realization, at least for me, and actually I don't think it's just me. But it's the realization that Claudia Gray herself, the author, is creating her own mini Star Wars universe uh, in that with with Lost Stars, with Bloodlines, with Leia, Princess of Alderaan, where like a lot of things that happened in Lost Stars right down to the Imperial Ballroom scene from Lost Stars, you get it from Leia's perspective in Leia, Princess of Alderaan. I mean, like there's tons of this. There's there's tons of mentions of shit that happens in Claudia's other books and I think that that is so cool, uh, that she's able to pull that off where there is now a, I mean, she wrote, you know, lost stars is such a great book because it gives you background to everything that's happening in the original trilogy and kind of the in between years between, you know, episode three and four. Um, and so that's great. But then to have more, to have the universe kind of, kind of come full circle where events surrounding the movies more, um, or, or where, where novels are now starting to reference lost stars in return. That's what I mean to say. Uh, I think that's really exciting. And I think she has her own little mini universe with her own little characters and whatever else uh, that, that she can kind of, you know, interact with and, and play with kind of uh, just like I was talking about with, uh, with Christy Golden, where she started creating some of her own characters like Lassa Rame and, and some others. Um, I think that this is something because most books uh, just really don't deliver on on the scale, in my opinion. They don't deliver on the scale that uh, that Leia Princess of Alderaan does, or Claudia Gray's other books, or Timothy's on, or or even Christie Golden. I I just I don't. I think there's a real problem. Uh, where in fact um, a a patron and good friend he he said something to the he and he made the analogy that it's almost like Lucasfilm hired these authors and then said, okay, you get to play in the playground, but we're going to take away the jungle gym, we're going to take away the swings, we're going to take away everything, you know, that really has any, like, reason for you to even be in the playground. And so what I think needs to happen, I get it perhaps why they're doing that, because they don't want to reveal their hand as far as what's going to happen with Star Wars, and probably because they are really making tectonic shifts in our understanding of, say, the Force and the Star Wars universe and all this. I mean, you've even heard... uh, you know Mark Hamill complain about some of the directions that these things go, even though he sort of retracts it after the fact. but I think there's such dramatic shifts happening as far as that goes that they sort of can't now I'm not giving I'm not excusing Lucasfilm from this. I think it's terrible and annoying that they want to do things this way. um I also think that's why they have books that are a bunch of origin stories and that play it close to the chest with uh to the or sorry close to the vest with um uh, with the movies that they're releasing, because it's the only thing they know that they can sell anything that they slap the word star Wars on right now. Okay. This is that second part of their marketing plan <laughs> is that, is that they know that they can sell anything that says star Wars. That won't always be true. This, this sheen of new star Wars films for the, for the, the super fans, it's never going to go away. Just like it never went away when there was no star Wars in the later eighties, early nineties. Okay. But for, you know, for the everyday person, Yeah, this is going to wear this is going to get, I think, old for some people at times. So they're they're trying to make as much money as they can right now by slapping the term Star Wars on anything. And so they're doing a lot of Star Wars origin novels. But they're origin novels that at the end that generally at the end of the day have like no bearing on the universe at large or what happens in uh, in the movies or something like this, except for some rare examples like perhaps, you know, uh, Leia, Princess of Alderaan. Uh, or like Bloodlines. Now, Bloodlines makes, you know, it suddenly brings a lot of clarity to things that are happening in The Force Awakens. Right. Um, so what I think really needs to happen, you know, because I don't know how much longer they're going to hold this kind of attitude where, OK, we got to keep everybody quiet. You know, you, you we can't let the authors play on the swings or with the jungle gym or anything. We got to leave that to the movies. Uh, I think in their best interest, they should just create a complete like all new characters that are not in any of the movies and just make it really great Star Wars and just let it rip and have it be in some part of the I don't know well they got to be careful what they do in the unknown regions because obviously they have plans for that when you read Thrawn or the Aftermath trilogy Uh, but just just create all new characters some new world you know it's a big galaxy And just let them go nuts and just make great Star Wars with with all new characters and maybe sprinkle in a cameo here and there from uh, from the big boys. That's that's what I would do. I think that's what they because what's happening is aside from examples like Leia, Princess of Alderaan, like, you know, kind of the top five that I mentioned and maybe other stuff by the authors in that cadre. uh, Aside from that, my statement and and I also had another uh, great guy and and patron uh, say this that he thinks my, my, uh, I, I have an old saying that I've had for decades. Okay. About star Trek and star Wars. And that is star Wars makes great comic books, but it makes shitty novels because it's such a visual medium as to where star Trek. Well, star Trek can make great comics too, but star Trek actually is the, I've always made the argument that it's, it's in many ways the opposite where star Trek makes great novels, but not so great comic books so much. And it makes great. Star Trek makes great novels because it's such a cerebral show. It's such a thinking show. It doesn't so much rely upon visuals, 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 because honestly, Star Trek, Star Trek at one point existed at a time when special effects were pretty rough stuff. That's never been true for Star Wars. The visual flair has always been part and parcel uh, with Star Wars. So comics work for Star Wars novels, not so much. And the person finally said after, you know, reading so many of of the new books that have come out with the new canon said, yeah, you know, actually, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Like it, it's tough going, it's tough slodging through some of these uh, star Wars books uh, because star Wars just doesn't work in book form. But also at the same time, I think that, that some of these books are genuinely like not the best. Princess Leia of Alderaan is one of the best, one of the best ever. It, it's just, it's so solid. It, it's so cool getting to experience Leia more, getting to have those connections to, uh, the last Jedi that are genuinely there, having all the connections to rogue one and the new hope. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, having the connections to episode one, phenomenal. All of that was, you know, Tarkin and all of that was just, was just, just top notch. Uh, really, really cool. Now, another book that came out, uh, which is Phasma, which came out the same day as Princess Leia of Alderaan, almost all the exact opposite is true, meaning that this is a book that, I mean, it has some degree of a varying timeline. Like at the end of it, it's nine years previous. Uh, at other points, it's 15 years previous to The Force Awakens. Um, it's kind of all over the map because it's telling a, it's a resistance agent telling a story to a First Order agent first order, a person, a person very important called Cardinal in the first order. Uh, the, the secret history of captain Phasma, where she comes from, she comes from this planet called Parnassus and all this, uh, which that's an interesting name, but I, I don't think I'll get into that, uh, right now. And, um, you do get introduced. There's some relevance with like the character of Cardinal where he wears this red armor, which will have some bearing in the last Jedi. Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even need really to get into the plot because, but I mean, I'll, I'll get into little bits of it, but bottom line with the book Phasma, okay. Not the most interesting read in the world, unless you're just crazy about this character of Phasma, which to some degree, I personally, you know, I, I actually, I really can respect because I was one of those guys in the nineties who absolutely loved Boba Fett. I still do. And totally because of the mystery and because he just looks so goddamn cool. And there's nothing wrong with that. Cool factor in so many ways is everything style over substance. Fuck. Yes, that works. Have you ever listened to kiss? It's my favorite band of all time. I mean they have plenty of substance too. They're great musicians, great artists. But you get my point. I don't have a problem with that. Like if people are really into Phasma just because of the enigma and because of um uh you know just because the character looks cool, that is completely valid, especially in Star Wars where it's like we just said, it's such a visual medium. Like visuals are everything uh when it comes to Star Wars. So but the not the Phasma novel, yeah, it tells you her supposed history. Um it kind of tell, I mean, well, you, you sort of get at the end of it, it confirms the story being told by the resistance agent. But, um, you know, she comes from this world where it's a very hard life. Brendel Hux, not Armitage Hux, who is the guy in, in the force awakens, but his father, general Brendel Hux crash lands on her planet, meets her. And, you know, they all have to work together to get off of there. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, that that's the basic plot of it. And it's really that basic of a plot. Um, Maybe the interesting things in it are some of the details that, that happen uh, in between, you know, I'll I'll say this quick, just like bloodlines and uh, lost stars, Leia, princess of Alderaan, most of the, sorry. So here's another theory that I have, or not theory. Here's what I think a lot of, it's true of a lot of new start, new Canon star Wars books. The only important things that happen in the book happen at the very end of the book. This is true with phasma with Claudia Gray's books. None of that is true. Like the entire book is important, but every other book, Ahsoka, go down the list of the books. The last chapter is where anything that has any real weight or bearing or that matters to the universe is where it happens. Uh, Phasma, I think very much it's similar. The same thing. In fact, like the last chapter is her making her armor, uh, which, of course, we know, according to uh, the Force Awakens Visual Dictionary is actually made out of a Naboo ship that belonged to Emperor Palpatine. Uh, You know, that's why it's chrome. So and really her armor was just like it was an art design for Kylo Ren that they just they thought it was too awesome. They didn't want to waste it. And so they gave it to her. Um, But this whole book is really setting her up. It's setting up her attitude. And it's I think it's being retroactive. They didn't expect people to respond, I think, so much to Phasma, just like maybe Lucas never expected Boba Fett to be a character that people responded to and were so interested in before. Um, They're kind of retroactively setting up. I think they're setting up Phasma for a big play as in big play, meaning she could join the resistance because this whole book is making her out to is making her out to be this character that doesn't care about the first order, doesn't care about anything except herself. Like there's a scene uh, your know, description of her past where she breaks permanently breaks her brother's leg and kills her parents uh also that she can survive and like you know they they're just trying to show how ruthless she is and that you know she's only working for the first order because it suits her Like it suits her goals for right now, but she'll, she'll turn, you know, any, any second and go and and work for, uh, for someone else. And I think part of this is also to retroactively explain, wait a minute, why did Phasma with just the slightest threat to her life? Why did she turn over the first order just like that? Well, now with the book Phasma, you kind of get some understanding of that is that she doesn't care about the first order. She just cares about herself surviving her, her will to survive is, is, you know, numero uno. And, and the biggest thing for her. So yeah, she'll blow up the entire star killer base as long as she doesn't get a blaster bolt to the head. Okay. And so I think they're trying to kind of explain that, which was really just a flub. I think that that was a very weak flub on JJ Abrams part, which is another reason why I think some people are mad that he's actually going to be doing episode nine regardless. Um, so yeah, so you get to, you get to understand that about Phasma, um, that she's this rogue character kind of like Boba Fett was, uh, She does. There are a lot of descriptions of how the First Order works and First Order operations. Uh, One of the interesting things that both the Phasma book and the Phasma, there's a there's a Phasma comic book going right now, which is only two issues, two issues deep right now. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit in a second. Um, That. The in both of those, they highlight that a lot of your First Order stormtroopers and pilots may be women. Um, that's like that, that comes right out. They have short cropped hair, the whole thing. It actually sounds kind of sexy, uh, so, but, uh, uh, but that, that was very interesting. So you get a lot of that stuff. You find out what effectively happened to, to Armitage Hux's dad and why Armitage is so young, but such a big deal, uh, in the first order already. Um, that makes some sense as compared to things that happened in the last book of the aftermath trilogy, of course, by Chuck Wendig, um, And yeah, you know, again, the book, eh. I mean, you could just kind of be told that, like, I I really think a paragraph could have explained the fact that Phasma is only out for herself. Uh, She doesn't really care about the First Order. Move on. You know, that that could have been done in like a prequel book to The Last Jedi or something. Uh, But instead, you have this entire book that is really just an exposition explaining how she's so ruthless and how she's so, you know, self-serving, blah, blah, blah. Not that I have a problem with that, but... but (laughs) She's an egoist. (laughs) Uh, But um, anyway, so she uh, at in like not the very last chapter, but the chapter previous to the last chapter or so, there's a point where, well, spoiler alert, she gets in a fight with Cardinal and she does take off her helmet, which is kind of a big deal because they keep hinting at the fact when they're not talking about Phasma's history, but for as long as well, her culture that she comes from on Parnassus has. Uh, has this thing about masks, where when they get to a certain age, they wear masks and they never take them off. So it's not like her wearing a helmet all the time is that out of, an, out, of an, out of a thing, but you do get somewhat of a reveal. Cardinal sees what she looks like with her mask off or with her helmet off. Again, this is playing more into that Boba Fett coolness factor, right? Because everybody always wondered throughout the nineties and so on, what did Boba Fett look like underneath that fucking helmet? Uh, they're they're really really playing and alluding, you know, and you know, alluding to that same. Uh, 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 mythos with uh, with the phasma character, and that's fine. I don't I don't mind that that's that's a thing. I mean, what the hell? JJ copied a bunch of other shit too. So, uh, he does see what she looks like, and it is made very clear that she is like hauntingly beautiful. Like she's just that that gorgeous. And of course, Gwendol is it Gwendolyn Christie, right? The actress who is in uh, Game of Thrones. I mean, she is a gorgeous, you know, just just a giant gorgeous woman. Um, and so that that's nice. You know, I I think that that's kind of cool that that they're playing it up that, Oh no, like, like, you know, she's really, really hot under there and just, you know, totally vicious, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, that's, that's okay with me. Um, I mean, that's all there is really to say about that book though. That book otherwise is, I mean, it's not terrible, but you know, everything that you need to know about it could have been handled very easily in, in like a visual, one of the visual dictionaries or in a cross sections book or something or a characters like the, the character encyclopedia that I have behind me that they just released in April. You could have explained all this just said she doesn't care about the first order. She's only out there for herself. Um, so it didn't need a whole novel, whatever. Uh, the comic book so far is interesting mainly because it takes place after the events of the force awakens. And it's really the only content, largely the only content we have where we have some kind of story that, Uh, that is happening, happening outside of, um, or that happens after uh, the force awakens. And the comic book is titled Captain Phasma is where the novel is just titled Phasma. Uh, It's sort of funny and they do a good job. Credit to Marvel because in the first issue, they are explaining how inside of like 15 minutes, pretty much Captain Phasma escapes Starkiller base to be able to live on to where she can end up being in the last Jedi. Uh, And they're sort of tongue in cheek about it. They know that it's crazy. They know that it's ridiculous and they make it over the top uh, with her in issue one. And so I think that that's fine. And then in issue two, you know, it it turns into a manhunt situation. It looks like in issue three, you might actually get to see her face or maybe issue four, because the, the preview of the cover is the helmet is her helmet off. Uh, So we'll, we'll see how that, how that shapes up. I've already read both, uh, both the original issues. The comic's not bad. The comic's certainly more worthy than, than the novel uh, is, but yeah, I mean, they're really setting this character up. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somehow, uh, she does end up just joining the resistance or something, or she becomes a bounty hunter on her own, whatever. Uh, you know, because it is, I, I get it. It's, it's a cool character. So that's all there is to say about the, uh, the phasma book. Um, just, you know, little interesting things to, to, to learn within it. Uh, you learn a lot about how the first order works and, Um, you know, how like the troopers are trained, like they talk about, they're not clones that they're programmed from birth. I mean, you learn more about that or programmed from whenever they're kidnapped or something. You learn a lot more about that in the book. Uh, but yeah, again, really it's just all to like, keep to just hammer you with the idea that Phasma is, is all about herself and no one else just totally, totally about herself. Um, so, yeah, so there you go with Phasma. And of course, like I said, the, the comic books, comic books shaping up pretty good so far. Uh, and if they weren't so tongue in cheek with the first issue explaining how she escaped Starkiller base inside of, you know, that 15 minutes and just how much she does, uh, I would have thought it would have been cheap. But th- they knew they knew they had to be kind of ridiculous with it. And I, and I, I think it works. Um so, all right, now let's talk a little bit about some other things. Uh, the rogue one comic book adaptation finally completed. Now, the nice thing about the rogue one comic book adaptation is that, uh, Gareth Edwards, in fact, wrote an afterward in issue one of this. And I reviewed that back, uh, a few months ago on a star Wars update, um, where he said, this is the comic ad- comic book adaptation has given me the opportunity to put in some deleted scenes and give things some more meaning. When you read the six issue, uh, Rogue One comic book adaptation, you definitely get that. You get more understanding of what what's going on for um, uh, for Galen Urso. You get a lot more of what's going on for Bodie, for Bodie Rook, the pilot. like you really you get feelings for the pilot for what's happening with him um, when you read this. and it's all because of these extra scenes that happen um, outside of it. And the stuff that you see in the movie, they they short of they they short of, they sort of shortcut it. So that you can get right to the things that the movie doesn't explore. So this is really cool because with the comic book adaptation for the for for the Force Awakens, it was pretty much a, a panel for panel. Just, you know, it's like, why read it? Because you could just watch the movie because there's nothing different in the comic book. The comic book doesn't add anything to the lore, to what's, uh, what's happening. Even reading the novel, you got a little something extra. You got a little bit more in the heads of the characters, like, uh, like at the end fight where you find out that Ray was tapping into the dark side a little bit for a moment. Uh, you know, you get a lot of those hints in the novel, but the comic book did the comic book adaptation of the movie did nothing as to where this is the exact opposite. It's almost not a comic book adaptation of rogue one. It's more like having a second screen while we're watching rogue one and you're seeing other events happening while you're watching rogue one. Uh, it's a really cool idea. I like the way that they treated this. Uh, it definitely expands this movie. Like I said, rogue one can continually become a much better film, uh, a much richer film with more meaning as more of this kind of stuff, like the rogue one comic book comes out or the rogue, rogue one comic book adaptation. Books like Leia, Princess of Alderaan, uh, you know, and, and so on. And a lot of these other books that take place right around that time of A New Hope uh, that really gives it meaning. Uh, they also, I, I, either it was end of August or in September, the Cassian and, and K2SO comic book came out. This was just a one shot. And what it was is, and this will lead into a point I have to make. Um, it just explained how Cassian met and reprogrammed K2SO. That's, that's all that really matters. The the whole comic is just about that. Uh, And this, it's really not worth reading. Like it's, it's not even necessarily that, that interesting. And there, there's not like any real expansion of the lore. Like there was the, there was the book that uh, had to do with Cherute Imwe and uh, Bell's Mavis um, that, that came out. You know, it was like a shorter book, not, not exactly a kid's book, but definitely for younger audiences. Uh, that at least expanded a little bit about upon the force and things on Jeddah that made it interesting. The Cassian and K2SO comic one shot. I didn't think that it, it like it, it was positively meaningless to me. Um, other than this falls into that marketing strategy. Like I said, you can slap star Wars on anything. And if you want to maximize sales, you got to release stuff, but you can only tell origin stories because if you tell anything more, I mean with rogue one, it's tough because you know, you, you can't tell any more stories that these characters are dead. OK, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, so you can only go backwards. But yeah, so so they're just they're, they're banking on a lot of these origin stories. Now, I think it's more, though. All right. And, and this brings up the point there's it's more, though, than that, because what I think Lucasfilm is doing, this is a very, very Jewish thing. And I don't know whose idea it is. OK, in Judaism, you have uh, this concept. You have these writings called Midrash. All right. Now, Midrash are these little stories. The best translation of the term would be folklore. Where it's little stories that try to explain little inconsistencies or give expansion and origin to a lot of little things that exist within Torah or you know the Old Testament or within the Talmud or something um like there's the stories of Lilith you know which Lilith is mentioned in the book of Isaiah of course if you read the King James it's just what the night monster or something like that other translations say it's the night owl or Whatever, However, it ends up getting described. The actual word there is Lilith. Wait a minute. What the fuck is this Lilith? And so some uh, rabbis decided to write an entire story about this fact that Adam actually had a first wife who would end up becoming a demon. And, uh, you know, blah, blah. I mean, I'm being very basic in the description. I could go on and on about Midrash because I used to study it a lot. But it feels like that's what they're doing with Star Wars is they're just doing a ton of Midrash. Where like, no, all right, we've got to explain the origins. We got to explain every little detail, everything that's there. But they're doing that, which is a great appeal to storytellers, admittedly, to expand, you know, to to, to a really high degree. I mean, there's a reason Midrash is, is so popular, so popular to be written, not just read. OK, is because people love to get these kind of expansions and explanations of, wait a minute, what the fuck's this, you know, wait, how did that happen? Gee, I wonder how, how these, how these two got together, or, you know, and all this, or how the hell did C3PO have a red arm? It all plays off like Midrash, uh, you know, Midrash to Torah and Star Wars being the Torah, which fucking might as well be. Uh, so, but again, Lucasfilm knows that anything they slap the name Star Wars on right now is going to sell gangbusters. And so they're really just selling everybody, midrash, you know, (laughs) and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but there's a reason here's, here's the problem with it. And, and I think midrash is the perfect analogy, not that uh, proof from analogy is proof, but midrash is widely considered, shall we say in star Wars terms, non-canon because you know that it wasn't made up by the originators, you know, it wasn't made up by the masterminds behind the big stories behind the big stuff. Uh, and so I think that's that's how it that's how the this the Star Wars midrash, as it were, all these origin stories and, and background and, you know, and, and all an expansion, and all this. It it feels cheap compared to the big stuff, you know, like it's like, oh, wow. You know, Adam's first wife, that story kind of I mean, not that it's not interesting. It certainly is. Uh, but. It kind of pales in comparison to the story of the wife that, oh, shit, we brought sin into the world or something like that. You know, even though Judaism sees that a little bit differently and I don't see any of it that way. So but you get my point, okay? is that a lot of the stuff just seems small, unimportant, not needed. And it doesn't really teach you anything as to where Torah has usually a purpose. It has a story to tell you. Oftentimes Midrash has no morals, you know, has no moral story to tell you. It's just like it's just purely Uh, uh, academic exercise it feels like a lot of times Uh, so I think that's what's going on with Star Wars and look I get it I fall prey to that myself often enough in my own in my own universe that I'm building in the sovereign universe I I really do get it Um, so I don't I don't necessarily mean to insult them with it but I think that that's the idea I think that's what they're going with Um, they're creating you know a really expansive mythology Uh, and that's not that's not a stupid thing to do in my opinion because again, they're thinking long game right now. Okay. It sucks. I know it sucks for me too. I, I'm bored with it. It's annoying. Okay. That, that Cassian and K2SO comic, I'm never going to get that time back. Not that it was a bad comic book. It's just why Like I like, I didn't care. I, I you know, you, you told me enough. Okay. He got reprogrammed. Got it. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't really need the history of the mission that, that, that brought us K2SO regardless of how you know popular a character K2SO has been. Now, so the reason that I say it's not a stupid thing to do is, look, if Disney's doing or Lucasfilm is, you know, well, which is a part of Disney now. If they're doing the right business, they need to be thinking 20 years in advance. Because if George Lucas was thinking 20, 30 years in advance when he first made Star Wars or even The Empire Strikes Back, uh, which he wasn't, by the way, he wasn't thinking that far ahead he could have done a whole lot of things different where he could have helped create a much larger universe with everything that was going on but it was a roll of the dice but now you know disney knows it's a known quantity okay so they can they can it's a known quantity and it's going to make money they know they've got a fan base there's no debate about it okay it wasn't you know lightning will absolutely strike twice here uh and so because of that they are thinking i think they're thinking 20 30 years in advance where 20, 30 years from now, people can come back to all of these stories, even the phasma novel, all the shitty novels you can think of and everything. But suddenly all of those novels are going to be part of the, you know, and even the shitty comics like Cassian and K2SO, but suddenly they're going to have deeper meaning. They're going to have meaning. They're going to be like, Oh yeah, that's how this happened. There's going to be like, you know, an entire very well detailed mythology in 20 years, like to the minutest detail. And that's going to be very interesting to people. And you're going to have an amazing encyclopedias and all this different stuff. They are thinking the very, very long game. So it pisses us off now. But Disney knows that they can make money right now. Like I said, just by slapping Star Wars on something. It's can they make money with this 30 years from now? And what they're doing right now, I think, is their plan to make sure that it does make 30 years or it does make money in 30 years because there's, there's such a richness to every story and there's so much to explore. There's so much content. There's so much resale value where like, I mean like you could sell the rogue one story in just a massive, like, you know, fucking, uh, you know, graphic novel collection where you have Cassian, then you have, uh, uh, I don't know, like rebel rising could be in there. I mean, they're, they're like, there's like there's just there's a whole bunch of ways that they could go about this. Uh, that's going to make them a ton of money. So I understand that. Like I, I get where they're going. It pisses me off at times. It's fucking annoying. Um, again, I thought that. Uh, yeah, the Cassie and K two S O comic was just stupid. Uh, in fact. Yeah, any well that, that that's it on that. But I did the, the Rogue One adaptation I think is well worth the read. Uh you actually get a much better send off I think to Saw Gerrera where he uh he remembers his sister uh towards the end, which I thought was a really nice touch. Um but anyway, so th- that's that's my thoughts on on all those. But so you know, kind of two major takeaways here and then I want to talk a little bit about Forces of Destiny. Um is that I you know, again, I think Disney is engaging in midrash here uh, and they know because they know right now it will sell and coming down the line it's not going to sell anymore and they're aware of that but they're you know they're making the buck while they can. Um, and then you have uh, the fact that Claudia Gray is really making uh, an entire mini Star Wars universe that surrounds the Star Wars movies um, but has as much has so much richness and interconnective tissue uh, that, that it's a really beautiful thing. I can't wait for more of her books. I mean, I really can't. And like I said, Leia, princess of Alderaan, easily one of the greatest star Wars books ever written. Um, okay. So last, uh, uh, you know, let, last bit here with, um, forces of destiny, same thing forces of destiny. So these are, there like six or seven of them and they had varying characters most of the time with their original voice actors, except for some fucking reason, Natalie Portman won't come back. It's annoying as hell to me. Uh, cause I don't think she has, I really, I don't think she has anything to be ashamed of, whatever people feel differently. Okay. Uh, but same deal with these, these little animated shorts, which a lot of people were very excited for. And I think they were a little overhyped. They're a little overhyped because what you ended up getting was not boring. And it's only two. And I mean, come on, it's only like two, two minutes, 45 seconds or something. Each one opens up with that little phrase from, uh, and, whatever and apparently they're going to make more they're they're going to make at least two more and disney's going to have like some big 30 minute special i think in october i could be wrong about the date on that where it's all going to be one big shot of forces of destiny uh where maybe they'll make all of this make a little more sense but what these are they're just little moments where um like the first couple episodes take place one after the other where it's exploring what it was like like literally just minutes in between when when Ray finds BB-8 and Ray and BB-8 traveling on Jakku, you know, during the Force Awakens, it covers that. And you could say, who cares? Who the hell needs to know that? You're absolutely right. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody needs to know that. It was it was kind kind of mindless. Um, but again, it was you know, it. I think it's more of this mid rush. You know, it's more of what they're doing. And I think they felt that they could sell anything with Ray, but you couldn't do anything previous to the force awakens or post force awakens, because then you'd be giving away shit about Ray, which right now is this huge mystery. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're sort of, I, I think they kind of put their own handcuffs on. Um, but some of the other ones were cool. The one with Jin Erso was whatever. Okay. You got to see her more of a fighter. So that more solidified her. Okay. So there's, there's a bit of mid rush. Um, then you have, uh, the ones with princess Leia. Now this one, so the two with princess Leia were, well, the three, cause there's one with Sabine Wren, which whatever, it was nice to see Sabine and Leia kind of in contact, but you know, other than getting to see Sabine, I didn't think that the episode really, really necessarily delivered, um, a whole lot though. It did show you how Leia did do secret stuff for the rebels here and there. Um, but the ones, uh, the one on Hoth and the one on the forest moon of Endor were very interesting. Uh, and I'll say because the one with Leia and the Ewoks, it never made sense to me. OK, now I love the Ewoks. I think that they're they're great characters, uh, you know, and they're vicious. Like they're they're really like they eat human beings. You understand they're cooking Han Solo. But the part that never made sense was why didn't they cook Leia? Did they just think women are superior? I mean, that's fine if that's what they think. But, like, why didn't they cook Princess Leia? Instead, they, like, treat her like a goddess. Like, what's what's the deal? I mean, hey, look, if anybody deserves to be treated like a goddess, it's fucking Carrie Fisher. Okay, but, um, you know, why, why is that? And I think that this little two and a half minutes explains why. Because she saved a bunch of Ewoks, you know, from getting captured. It wasn't just, like, that she was nice to Wicket, like you see in Return of the Jedi, but she ends up saving a bunch of Ewoks. Um, and so that made sense. And, and they, you even get to see where they give her the clothes, you know, that you see her wearing a return of the Jedi when everybody goes to the Ewok village and all that. Uh, and so I thought that that was kind of interesting. That, that was sort of cool to see. I didn't mind that the other one, I don't think everybody would get the importance of the other one. And this is the one that takes place on Hoth where Leia's looking for Chewbacca and she goes to find him and she finds him in through it's just some door that leads into a cave and she finds Chewbacca being held by a wampa, you know, the big giant, uh, you know, furry white thing that's beating up Luke in the beginning of uh, Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, so there's an there's this whole thing where they're taking on the wampa. She has to free Chewbacca and they have to end up getting back into that door. And so that they, they get back through the door into Echo Base and they close it off. Now, what I was hoping would happen in this is that you would see C-3PO or somebody who put a yellow warning sticker on this door because there's long been known. And you can see part of the scene. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. There is a deleted scene from the empire strikes back and it's funny as hell. Okay. Uh, And I really wish that they were going to, it was the one scene I actually wanted to see them include in the special editions that never happened. Maybe someday it will. But when the Imperials are invading echo base on Hoth and in the empire strikes back, when C3PO is running away, this is the deleted scene. C3PO is running away and stormtroopers are going after him. He sees the, he sees this door with a yellow like warning sign on it. He rips the tag off the door and then he keeps running. He doesn't go through the door. He runs away from the door. Stormtroopers come following behind and they, they open the door and then suddenly you hear the wampas. And, like, these stormtroopers are just freaking out, blah, blah, blah. And then Darth Vader comes walking by. The door gets closed by the other stormtroopers nearby. And Vader says something like, is there a problem? And the stormtrooper just says, oh, no, no, no problem. Or the snowtrooper, I guess, in this case. Says, oh, no, no problem, sir. You know, <laughs> and, then, and everybody just kind of moves on. But C-3PO, it's funny because C-3PO, like, just rips off this warning sticker and it tricks the stormtroopers into getting attacked by a bunch of wampas. And I think that this Forces of Destiny little mini episode, two minutes, was showing that door. That that legendary that fabled door that has the warning sign on it, even though in in the Forces of Destiny cartoon it, it's it's not there. But I think that's what they were hinting at, and it would have been great if they made a Forces of Destiny where even just they showed that scene. That'd be fine, you know. You don't even have to like add it into the movie. Just just do the little do the little the little cartoon with it, you know, the little animation with it. And I think that that'd be great. So I actually liked both of those. I thought that those were cool. But the ones with Ray. Kind of meaningless. The one with Jyn so I get it. You're trying to show her being more of a badass and a fighter. Okay, fine. But kind of meaningless and showing that she has a heart and all this. Uh, but but those two, the one the one on Endor or on the Force Moon of Endor, and the one on Hoth, both of those I think were really really cool and actually answered some questions or made references to to some ancient lore uh, within Star Wars, uh, the making of Star Wars, I guess I should say, uh, particularly. So so those those were all right. Um, there, like I said, there's going to be more of these, they, they've already said that, and they're going to be doing a special on the Disney channel or di- on Disney XD, I assume, um, where they're going to show all of them and maybe some new ones, or maybe they're making all new ones. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm fine with these, you know? Yeah. Do we need to know? No, but wh- who the fuck cares? Like, well, I wouldn't tell them not to do it. Like, go ahead, <laughs> you know, ha- have, have a good time with that. <laughs> I mean, they're only two and a half minutes long, you know, it's not like taking away so much time from my life. Um, So, but, but I do understand where people are just like, oh, these are, these are so pointless. Why is Lucas like telling every little nitty gritty detail? Well, like I said, they're thinking very long game and they want to have answers for all this stuff. Um, And, you know, that way that they can, you know, eventually they could have, uh, you know, maybe even automate sort of the story group in a way to where there are so many answers to this and that authors could, uh, you know, write willy nilly and, and all, and who knows what else they could do. Maybe it's to create, you know, maybe Disney knows that, in 30 years that they're going to have some kind of awesome virtual reality technology. And they want like as much information inputted into the star Wars galaxy and the star Wars story and universe, right down to origin stories of every major character that you see in the movies um, to where that can have uh, weight and bearing on what you experience in this virtual reality world. Maybe that's, maybe that's the big plan here. Uh, but I, I really don't have a, you know, it, it's fine. I mean, if, if I, if I was all right, Let's be honest, like if I had to pay for a lot of it, that I'd be pretty annoyed. But if I was buying comic books, I, I buy books. I do. I buy the audiobooks, books. OK, um, but if I were buying the comic books, I would buy the trades. I'd buy the graphic novels because there's nothing going on that that can't wait for the whole series to come out. You know, like you, you don't need to know that far ahead of time, uh, in my opinion, with 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 with, with what's going on. So, yeah. So if you do want to buy them all, just wait for the trade paperbacks, you know, wait for the collected series and then you don't have to buy the single one shots. They'll just be included with one of the trades. You know, that's that's the way to go with that. So anyway, that's what I think what's happening with Star Wars. There's a review of some of the content that came out. We'll do another one of these for October where I'm going to do a review of a lot of other series that have uh, come and gone so far uh as far as comic book goes including darth Maul, uh screaming Citiz- citadel a lot of what's happening with dr afra and and some other things um that we'll be covering and there's that uh was what is it stories from a galaxy far far away or something where it's like 40 short stories um i already have that pre-ordered i'll be jumping on top of that um and there's a whole bunch of other stuff so you know you're going to get one of these once a month easily because there's a, there'll at least be a novel and there's always comics every week that that i'm reading so uh Yeah. Countdown for Last Jedi. We're under 90 days, baby. It's going to be a great time. Uh, I will I will be ticketed up for that shit. So anyway, uh, more content coming out on Patreon this week. We're going to end up we're going to end off September with a bang, baby. I will see you on the other side. And yeah, may the force be with you. What the hell?